I have a story, um, and I'm going to tell you. It's, the first part is for the children and all of us, and then we'll talk about praying with our feet. This is a story of a grandmother who prayed with her feet. And every day she walked her grandson to school because his mother had already gone to work. And he started not wanting her to walk him. And she didn't know why. So finally she asked him. And he said, Grandmother, I'm so... I'm so sorry and I'm so embarrassed, but it's because all the white kids in the school make fun of you. I feel really bad. She said, what do they say? They say, you know, the way her hair is like it combs over and covers up and and one side of her face kind of droops and she walks with this big limp. And she said, grandson, let me tell you why that is. That's because when we had protest and we marched and we stood up for our rights, the police came after us and they clubbed us. And one clubbed me in the side of my head. And the hair never grew back from where that was. So that's why I comb it over. And my face that droops. That's where they sent the dogs after us, and the dog bit my face, and it took away the nerves that let my face work the way it's supposed to. And my knee, then they put high-pressure water hoses against us, and I fell, and it hurt my knee, and I could never walk again well. And I did all of that to stand up for our rights so that we, as children who couldn't go to school with anyone we wanted to, where we were, that we could do that. So, grandson, now you can go to this school and get the education you're getting because of those things. And the next morning, he was knocking on grandmother's door. Please, will you walk me to school? I think grandmother was praying with her feet. And that is a phrase that was made known by Rabbi Heschel, who was one of Dr. Keene's supporters. It's a a picture that's in our memory of Dr. King and Rabbi Heschel walking hand in hand in the March of Selma. Dr. King and this white-bearded Jewish man walking in solidarity. And they shared several things in common, though they were from different traditions and traditions that sometimes didn't get along. They both spoke of the Bible as being important through the eyes of the prophets. They talked about Moses in the Exodus story. They talked about the morality of humans, of prayer, and political commitment, that you needed all three of those. They each had a prophetic vision, and they said it needed to be on three levels, that you had to speak truth to power, 
one. And two, that you had to speak truth to the powerless people, to empower them to work for deeper social change. And the third one, they said you had to speak truth to your supporters who were afraid of going on, who were afraid of going out and marching again, who were afraid of taking a stand on the war. Dr. Heschel really, Rabbi Heschel really worried about Dr. King speaking out about the war. It was okay, he knew, when he was talking about civil rights. But he knew when he started talking about poverty and the war that it was going to be dicey for him. He, he couldn't figure it out. He wondered, would, would this public opposition of Dr. King, would it hurt the civil rights movement? Would it end because he was speaking out about the war? And he couldn't decide which was better. what was better politically and what was better for the greater greater moral good. And I think many people realized that it was when King made that, when Dr. King made that switch and started talking about poverty and war that he became really dangerous in this country. The night before he was killed in Memphis, Dr. King gave a speech, as he did on many occasions. That night, though, he was particularly troubled about a number of things. Dr. King was worried that a movement that was founded in nonviolence had begun to turn to the tactics of war. People had taken up weapons and started fighting with one another. He was worried that many of his followers did not understand why, after winning victories about civil rights, he broadened his ministry to include opposing the war in Vietnam, working on fair labor practices, and starting the Poor People's Campaign. He was worried about the increasing number of threats against his life and what would come of his ministry should he be killed. Today, his speech that night is remembered mostly because of that last worry. Given the events of the next morning, it seemed prophetic, like he was telling the future for Dr. King to be giving instructions to his followers on what to do following his death. He was, after all, only 39 years old. But he said a whole lot more on that April night in Memphis. In his speech, Dr. King called on his followers to, in his words, develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. We need, he told us, to understand that what happens to you needs to be important to me, and what happens to me needs to be important to you. He told the story from the Christian scriptures of the Good Samaritan, a story told by Jesus about a man who was beaten up and left by the side of the road. The man was passed by by a judge and was passed by by a priest. But when a Samaritan, a man from another tribe, an enemy tribe, passed by and saw the man on the side of the road, the Samaritan stopped to help him. Dr. King told his followers some of the background of this story, that the road 
on which the story took place was a famously dangerous one. Anyone living in that time would have known that was a really dangerous place to be. People got robbed there all the time by bandits who hid in the bushes on the side of the hills. And the priest and the judge, they were probably afraid that they were being ambushed, set up to be robbed. The Samaritan, though, the Samaritan was what Dr. King would have called dangerously unselfish. He did not think about what would happen to him if he stopped. He didn't think, maybe I'm going to get beat up by someone if I stop to help this man. He just thought, what would happen to this man bleeding and dying by the side of the road if I do not stop? Earlier in his life, Dr. King famously said that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That was a kind of simpler way of making the point that everything in our world is connected. That all of us, all of us, no matter our color, no matter how much money we have, all of us are in this together. And that we need to look at our society as interdependent, as all connected to one another, and not as small groups of independent people. In 1967, speaking at Riverside Chapel in New York City, he identified one problem with our society. We had become too thing-oriented. From today's opening words, we, we heard, when machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, we will be incapable of facing the greatest threats to our society. And those greatest threats to our society, Dr. King said, he told us they were racism, materialism, and militarism. We can think of those big words. We can think of them as hatred, poverty, and war. Those were the three things he said were the greatest threats to our society. Hatred, poverty, and war. And Dr. King taught us that hatred, poverty, and war, those three big evil things, were not isolated things, but they were connected to each other. They were dependent on one another. And that remains the case to this day. We foster hatred in our society, for example, so that we can justify war. This is an easy one to understand. Just look at this week's newspaper. This week in the news, there was an awful story that came out of Afghanistan about American Marines doing bad things to the dead bodies of the Taliban soldiers they had killed. And people want to call those people who who did those bad things bad people. But I think that there's a larger picture that we're missing. You see, we have taught our soldiers, our sailors, and our Marines, we have taught them to hate the people that they're fighting against. Because it's the only way, the only way that, that they can psychologically justify killing them if they hate them. And that's the result of hatred. We have taught them to hate so that they can actually go out there and make war. But we also, in this country and in this society, foster hatred so that we can justify poverty. A common refrain in American politics for many years has been to blame the poor for being poor. And this, of course, is combined with the notion that those of us who are not poor deserve not to be poor. So we miss the reality that many of us are one missed paycheck away from extreme financial distress. And we mix most of this blame pretty obviously with racism in our society. 
We make a society in which it is not our problem to solve poverty because we are not poor. And because we are not poor, those people who are poor should be able to do something about it themselves. It's a society that teaches us to live in isolation and have disgust, to to have hatred for other people who are not like us. It's It's a lesson that teaches us that we are not responsible for how our brothers and sisters in our society live. And Dr. King warned us about this. We also... We also put up with poverty so that we can wage war. All three of those things are connected. Hatred, poverty, and war. And so we also put up with poverty so that we can wage war. Uh, Dr. King once wrote that a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. I'm afraid we are there or perilously close to it. Just look at the current debate over our federal budget deficit and notice what recently happened just in the last couple of weeks when the suggestion was made that maybe the defense budget, our military budget, the budget that we use to wage war should be cut to help meet some of those deficit goals. Congress people from all over the country at every political orientation imaginable, Democrats and Republicans and people who are unsure if they're one or the other, people all over the country in whose districts the materials of war are built, rose up and said, we can never let that happen. President Dwight Eisenhower warned us in 1961 in his farewell address of the consequences of this. Here's what Eisenhower famously had to say. He wrote, the conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. It was new in 1961, not so new in 2012. He said, the total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. He said, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. It's a famous line that he said. And what he meant by that, what he meant by that is that the more that we wage war, the more that our economy becomes dependent on us waging war, building bomber planes and rockets and ships to go fight other countries. And so our very livelihood, our, our economy, our paychecks, whether we want to admit it or not, become dependent on our country fighting wars from time to time. Because if we didn't ever use the bombs, we'd never need to build new ones. Eisenhower in 1961 and King in 1967 were both trying to let us know that the structure of our society was being changed by our insistence on being ready for war at all times and our insistence on fighting wars again and again, no matter how popular or justified. And because we do insist on having that military that's ready at a moment's notice to fight and because we do insist on fighting wars again and again, we don't have enough money, enough resources to lift people out of poverty. We don't have enough money, enough resources to make sure that children in rural Mississippi are not starving. 
They were starving in 1967, and they're still starving in 2012. Dr. King taught us that these three great evils in our society, hatred, poverty, and war, were all connected to one another. We would do well to remember that we are all in this together, that we are connected to every other person on this planet, rich or poor, American or Afghan, light-skinned or dark or something in between. We are connected to them. We would do well to remember that what happens to you needs to be important to me, and what happens to me needs to be important to you. We would do well to remember Dr. King's request that we be dangerously unselfish and replace our love for things with a love for our fellow people. We would do well to remember that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Let us remember these things in the name of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., whose birthday we celebrate this weekend.